to your August Worcester Talking uh, magazine. Uh, the opening music today is by children who have wanted to make an observation about the recent changeable weather. And that was by special request by our techie tonight, Duncan. Duncan Wynn. <laughs> yeah. He, like Winston Churchill, thinks our children's voices were great. <laughs> Sorry, Duncan. Anyway, as always, um, we are recording here at Collins Chance House, deep in the heart of Worcester. My name's Barry Hurd, and with me today are two old hands and a newcomer to our team. So, if you'd like to introduce yourselves. Hi, Brian. And Alan. And hi, it's Pippa. Hi, Pippa. Nice to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'll get the last word. <laughs> <laughs> are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This, this show could run as well. <laughs> now then, children. Okay. <laughs> and, well, as, as I said before, in the massive control room behind the thick bulletproof window is Duncan Wind, And I'd say a great thank you to Duncan. And after the vast amount of hours, work, sweat, tears, it takes to complete this spectacular, let's hope we complete it, uh, you wouldn't be able to hear it without the wonderful people who copy this magazine onto those tiny little sticks you are listening to right now. So many thanks to Janet Weaver and Carol Hartle, and to anyone else from our wonderful team of volunteers who may have helped them. Or are you hearing us this through Worcester Talking newspaper website, or by iPod from perhaps a mobile telephone? Isn't life complicated? 
Right, having got that over with, um, we've got, oh yeah, everyone's got some uh, quotes, uh, lines, I should say, from films, and um, this is by way of uh, a quiz for you, and a tough demand on some of us, so uh, I'll start off, and this, this was from a film made in the 1930s that... Um, was before, during and after the American Civil War. And I think this was the last line in the film. And it says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. So let's give people a couple of seconds at home to see if they can remember that. And, OK, who knows it? Me. Yeah, go on, sir. You're gone. Anyone? <laughs> don't be gone shy. Gone with the wind? Gone yes, exactly, yes. Gone with the wind. Clark Gable sign. Yeah, that's right. Um... And this one's another one, uh, also from America. That I'm going to make him an offer he can refuse. Hmm, that's a bit more difficult for me. Well, it's 1972. Were you born? <laughs> 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 sounds like no. It sounds like the sort of thing Clint Eastwood would say, but I don't think it was. No, uh, no. There was. I think there was a trilogy of these films, uh, sort of mafiosa type things. Of the, the Godfather? Godfather? Yeah, exactly, ah. The Godfather. And ah. let's have a look, Al one Bocino, more. Al yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was Mar Marlon Brando, apparently. That one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, this one uh, from a, a sort of detective thing. Um, so, go ahead, make my day. I think he said punk. I think go he did. Ahead, yeah. punk, be clean, make my day. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Dirty Harry. Uh, well, actually, it was Sudden Impact, apparently. Oh, yeah, he was right. back to Dirty Harry. Right. Oh, right. right. Yeah. Okay. okay, Brian, let's have a couple from you. Well, um, one I've certainly never heard of, the quote is, if you build it, he'll come. From oh. a film in 1989. Oh, some, Any thoughts? Someone here knows it, I think. Yeah. Uh, it was from the Field oh, of Dreams. Field of Dreams. Yeah, yeah. The, was that where he Joe Jackson. Oh, that was the baseball thing, wasn't it? Yes. Slightly, uh, slightly. Kevin, Kevin Costner? Ray Liotta. Oh, Ray Liotta, actor, okay. Yeah, so yeah Field of Dreams, slight, lovely film. Slight, slightly newer than that. Another line that means nothing to me, I'm afraid, but you'll probably know it. Mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. 1994. That's still chocolate, isn't it? Mm, right, OK. Well, that was Forrest Gump. Oh, Tom oh, Hanks. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just, you know, I've never seen that, strangely yeah. enough. I think most people haven't. All right. Just do them. one more then, Barry. There's um, a single, single line, very short one. We rob banks. We oh, rob no, banks. Nineteen sixty seven Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde Barrow. Warren Beatty. Yeah, and Faye Dunaway, wasn't it? Over to Alan. Um, okay, let's um, see if we know this one. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. I, I saw this film recently. We're going back to the genre that we just discussed. The games one. No. And it is from The Godfather Part 2. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Al Pacino playing the character Michael Corleone, who was the, uh, who was the legal eagle, I think, of, the, of that team. Um, <laughs> this one's intriguing. I have no, no idea. 
about this one myself. The quotation is, what a dump. That's it. That's, That's it. it. Oh. <laughs> and I've, no, I've never heard of the You're not film. taxing yourself at all over there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of the film before, although I have heard of the actress who was Betty Davis in a film called Beyond the Forest in mm. 1949. Oh, that was way before my time. No. I'm left off there. Very much in my time. It means nothing. Meant young, nothing. Meant young, nothing. Young. I don't know. The, uh, the this this one. Everybody should know this. As soon as I start talking, <laughs> Mrs. Robinson, you're <laughs> trying. <laughs> you're trying to seduce me, aren't yeah. you? <laughs> That's Dustin. Dustin Hoffman. In, yeah, in the graduate. The graduate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. really lovely that. And Pippa. Well, I'll begin with, um, I think it's quite an easy one. And the line goes, play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Yes, Casablanca. Oh, I don't think you gave them long enough, but you're quite right. <laughs> yep. I don't think they would have needed very long to guess that yeah. one. Yes. And here is a clue which might help you. Um, the next one is from a film that we have already discussed. After all, tomorrow is another day. Oh. Now, I did know this because it's one of my favourite films. Oh, it's Gone With the Wind again. It is Gone With the Wind again, yes. Vivian Lee, Vivian Lee line. Playing Scarlett, Scarlett O'Hara. O'Hara. That's right. And bringing us a little bit more up to date, again, another line which I think is uh, fairly well known. I'll have what she's having. Oh, uh, when Harry met Sally. Harry met Sally. Indeed, yeah. yep. They were in the cafe. That's cafe. right, yeah. yep. Yes. I don't think we need to carry on describing oh, yeah. what, <laughs> what they were doing. So take that as red. Yep, yeah. that was 1989. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> OK, um, we've got some dates now, some dates which I hope we can read out and expand on as well. Um, the first one I'd like to bring up um, is the, the 15th of September... Uh, was a very important day in the Battle of Britain. Um, it uh, after after the um, August the thirteenth Adlertag or Eagle or Eagle Day that the Germans um, started. They thought they could wipe out the RAF, and uh, they sent huge squadrons of uh, bombers and fighters over. But the RAF um, managed to knock down quite a few, and um, they just kept going. Apparently, the RAF, um, who the Germans thought they could wipe out, were able to build in the factories three fighters for every two, and we had a great deal more pilots than the Germans thought we had. The only thing that they were suffering from was fatigue, keep going up one, you know, two, three, four times a day sometimes. But they were switching them around from the main battle area up into different sectors around the country so that it would give them a little bit of rest. But, um, I mean, that was the beginning of the end for the German Air Force because September the 15th um, was when the last day that the Germans tried to destroy the Air Force and they lost 56 German planes shot down for the loss of 28 British ones. But, I mean, obviously if the British pilots weren't killed... Um, they parachuted down and often back in the air the same day. And as I say, it was the end of that uh, type of day attack or the major day attacks and they went over to bombing at night when the blitz began, which gave the RAF 
uh, time then to completely reorganise itself and go on the offensive. Sadly for the towns and cities, but uh, it did. So. Yes, you can. Can I expand on that? Just you can do indeed. Um, yes, this this was a, a parlous time for the nation, and all credit to the Royal Air Force for winning the Battle of Britain, as it became known. Um, I've just finished reading a book called First Light by an author called Geoffrey Wellham. He fought in the Battle of Britain as a pilot officer and he was uh, trained and qualified as a pilot at the age of 19. It's frightening, isn't it? Fascinating book. The squadron leaders, I think, in the battle were... 24 the oldest average age they were all below 24 18 19 20 21 but i mean credit to a lot the australians um polish uh some americans canadians etc check that that flew flew us spitfires for us and uh, gave us a great deal of help at our greatest time of need really was Anyway, Brian, what have you got date-wise? Well, some August dates. Um, August the 1st in 1838 was the date when slavery was abolished. Uh, No, not where you think. No, that was much later. Slavery was abolished on August the 1st, 1838 in Jamaica. It had been introduced by the Spanish 300 years earlier in 1509, but of course by 1838 it was very much the British in control. And uh, to our shame or whatever, we must remember that places like Bristol and Liverpool's prosperity was uh, based very much upon the slave trade for many, many years. Um, Another sad, sad situation, well, sad date really, yes, a sad date. Again, August the 1st, this time in 1944, when Anne Frank penned her last entry into her diary, which said... Keep on trying to find a way of becoming what I'd like to be and what I could be if there weren't any other people living in the world. Three days later, Anne and her family were arrested and sent to the Nazi concentration camps and she died at Bergen-Belsen on March the 15th, 45, at age, aged only 15. Going on to August the 3rd, in, 19, uh, in 1492, that was the date that Christopher Columbus set sail from Palos in Spain with his three ships, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. He was seeking a westerly route to the Far East, but on October the 12th, he landed in the Bahamas, thinking this was an outlying Japanese island. He, d- he never actually got to America, did he? No, I don't think he ever no, put no, And got, yet there's... To the Caribbean, yeah. Schools, roads, universities, all named after him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, poor, the poor chap that did discover it's got nothing. <laughs> well, Sorry, Alan, I'd interrupt you. Over to you, Alan. Um, 1945, August the 6th. The first atomic bomb was dropped over the centre of Hiroshima at 8.15 in the morning by the American bomber Enola Gay. The bomb detonated at about 1,800 feet above the ground, killing over 105,000 people and destroying the city. Another estimated 100,000 people died later as a result of radiation effects. 
There was also, oh yes, on August the 9th, I thought it was about that, August the 9th, The second atomic bombing of Japan occurred as an American B-29 bomber headed for the city of Kokura, but because of poor visibility, then chose their secondary target, Nagasaki. At about noon, the bomb detonated, killing an estimated 70,000 people and destroying about half of the city. There was one great story, well, it's not so great for him, that after... Um Nagasaki, uh, not uh, Nagasaki got bombed. He moved to um, what was the first one that got bombed? Hiroshima. Hiroshima. Sorry, after Hiroshima got bombed, he moved to Nagasaki. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh dear. <laughs> um, Sorry. Sorry. Going back to the First World War, um, the international spy Mata Hari was born in. Lewarden in the Netherlands. She was born as Margaret Gertrude Zeller. She was arrested by the French in 1917 as a German spy. She was tried, convicted and sentenced to death. At her execution, she refused a blindfold and instead threw a kiss to the French firing squad. I think that's the way to go, isn't it? Mm. (laughs) Well, I prefer not. (laughs) (laughs) And just one more then. Birthday for the British poet Alfred Lord Tennyson, 1809 to 1892. <clears throat> he was born in Somersby, Lincolnshire. He was appointed poet laureate in succession to William Wordsworth. <clears throat> and memorable poems by Tennyson include Ode on the Death of Wellington. That should have been Ode on the Death of the Duke of Wellington. And The Charge of the Light Brigade. <coughs> that charge of the light gave was one of my favourites at school. Mm. <coughs> right, well, going way back uh, to 79 AD, in fact, I wonder if any of you can guess what might have happened. Well, you're, you're not allowed to, Barry, because oh, you will be uh, you, you're responsible for providing the information. Any thoughts? Assassination of some Roman emperor? Mm. No? Nope. No. Vesuvius on August oh, the 24th. Was Vesuvius? Yeah. An active volcano in southern Italy erupted and destroyed the cities of Pompeii, Stabiae and Herculaneum. Herculaneum, yeah. That's, oh, sorry. That's okay? No, that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's Stabiae. I've never heard of, I've heard of Herculaneum and I've heard of, obviously of Pompeii, but I, by Stabiae. I've not heard of that either. Heard no. That. no. I don't know. Have they ever dug it up? Is there any ruins? To, and no, I suppose nobody knows. Not here. I don't know. No. Talents might know, but they can't build bridges. Then, shall I carry on? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, carry on. (laughs) Um, Coming up to date a little bit more, on August the 29th, 1991, following the unsuccessful coup of August the 9th, from August the 19th to the 21st, the Soviet Communist Party was suspended, thus ending the institution that ruled Soviet Russia for nearly 75 years. It's incredible to think it was, it was a actually, formal resolution. Yes, yeah, formal dissolve. Yes, and I think that people often say when something very um, shocking happens. I know. I know people say they can remember where they were when um, what was his name? Kennedy. The American. Thank you, Kennedy. I can remember when where I was and what I was doing when Princess I, Princess Diana died, mm-hmm. and that was August the thirty first in nineteen ninety seven. 
And she was only 36 and she died from the internal injuries suffered in a high speed car crash reportedly after being pursued by photographers. And the crash occurred in Paris inside a tunnel along the Seine River at the Pont de l'Alma Bridge, less than a half a mile north of the Eiffel Tower. And I'm sure everyone remembers that also killed in the crash were Diana's companion, Dodi Fayed, who was 42, and the chauffeur, Henri Paul. And the fourth person in the car, the bodyguard, Trevor Rhys-Jones, was seriously injured, but he did survive. And the poignant thing there was, one reads, they were not wearing seatbelts. No, I know. <laughs> so, so sad. So, yes, I can remember that very well. Yeah, I came, my son rang me up in the middle of the night to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> not helpful. No, no, no. It well, sort of helped me to remember. August 16th, 1977, Elvis Presley was pronounced dead. Um, when um, this came on the news, I think it was Reginald Bosenkett. Reginald Bosenkett was said, "Oh, I've just had a news flash. I've just had a goo." Uh, said, "Oh, um, Elvis Presley's dead. Elvis Presley's been pronounced. No, he's not. No, that's that's wrong. Yes, he is. He's been pronounced oh, dead. Geez. It was <laughs> unbelievable. And um, uh, oh, here we are. Um, it would have been the birthday of American frontiersman. August August was the birthday." of American frontiersman Davy Crockett, 1786-1836. He was born in Hawkins County, Tennessee. He was a farmer, scout, politician who perished at the age of 49 during the final defence of... The yeah. Alamo. Exactly, the Sorry, Alamo against... What was his name? Santana, was it? Santa, Sant- Santana. Santana. Something like that. Anyway, he was a Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's have... I'm going to read out one more line from films, and Brian can start with his first story, which oh. is about... Well, you might as well do a story, Brian. Um, one of your stories or one of mine? Uh, no, this is a proper story. No, 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 no. Oh, sorry, I, I see what you mean about one of yours. Uh, this is about Admiral William Tennant, yes, who indeed. later became Lord Lieutenant of Worcester. Yes, but indeed. the word I'm going to read um, was rosebud. From a film, very famous film, supposed to be the best film ever, uh, for a long, long time. Rosebud. That's the quote. That's that was the it. Quote, it yes. was the last word in the film, and it was it's a Rosebud. horror film, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. No, no, <laughs> no, I don't know that one. No. Clue, give us the year. Oh, well, hang on, I've got to find it. <laughs> it was. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It was. Uh, it was Orson Will. Well, Orson Welles' film. Golly. Citizen, oh, Citizen Kane. Kane. Yeah. Was it Citizen yeah, Citizen Kane. Kane. And it was the very last word. Yeah. It was a, it, that everyone tried to find yes. out what Rosebud meant, thinking it might have been a, a, a young lover series or something. Hmm. But it was his uh, boat he had when he was younger. Oh, right. <laughs> so oh, that was it. Right. Okay, Brian, off you go. Well, Thank I was you very going much. to throw at you a bit of oh. absolutely useless trivia because you threw in the name Reginald Bosenkay, the newscaster. Oh, yeah, and and people should be reminded <laughs> that Reginald, Bo- Reginald Bosenkay was the son of the man who invented the googly. Now, that's very important to know that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Okay. Right. Charting the career of a county war hero. A tall, dignified, yet unassuming figure in naval uniform was the leading personality at many of the formal and ceremonial events covered by the evening news in the first ten years 
of this reporter's career going back to 1953 to 63. The subject is Admiral Sir William Tennant, Lord Lieutenant of Worcestershire, Alderman of Worcestershire County Council, and undoubtedly the most distinguished son of Upton-upon-Seven. But it's taken 30 years after his death to discover the breathtaking detail of the remarkable and legendary career of this much-decorated naval hero of two world wars. His greatest claim to fame was as the beachmaster for the Dunkirk evacuation in 1940. Yet he was also in command of the equally mammoth operation and large armada of tugs and ships which towed across the two vast mulberry floating harbours for the 1944 D-Day landings. He was in charge too of the laying of the cross-channel Pluto fuel pipeline for the same Normandy invasion. It was just a short mention of Admiral Tennant's exploits in the recent book Wartime Worcestershire by Jeff Carpenter that sent me to the local reference section of Worcester Library to take notes from the booklet of a portrait of the Admiral Sir William Tennant. This was written by Commander Roger Corbett Millward of Upton and this author was the driving force behind the appeal in the, the appeal in the late 1980s, which raised the money to commission a bronze bust of Sir William as a belated memorial. Since 1988, the bust by the Martley sculptor Leslie Punter has graced Upton's old churchyard. But Commander Corbett Millward also felt that the momentous naval achievements of Sir William had gone largely unsung. So he then went on and was prompted in 1990 to write his portrait of the great man. All facts quoted in this article are drawn from that booklet. William, known as Bill Tennant, was born in 1890 the son of Lieutenant Colonel and Mrs Edmund Tennant of the Eads, Monsell Road, Upton-upon-Seven. At just 15, he was sent to the Junior Naval College at Osborne on the Isle of Wight and later to the training ship HMS Britannia moored in the Dart. His first posting was to the battleship HMS Prince of Wales in the Mediterranean before he became a midshipman on the destroyer HMS Queen and then a lieutenant and qualified navigator on HMS Dryad. This was in 1913. During the Great War, he was first involved in naval actions at Heligoland and Dogger Bank before being appointed navigation officer of the cruiser HMS Chatham, the flagship for operations off the Dardanelles and for the evacuation of Gallipoli. Then in 1916 he joined HMS Nottingham in the Grand Fleet for the Battle of Jutland and survived the sinking of his ship in the North Sea by U-boat torpedoes. His final wartime service was aboard HMS Concord, which was helping to safeguard the passage of troops to and from Flanders. In 1919 he married Catherine Mary Blount, his wife for the next 44 years of his life. 1920, he was promoted to Lieutenant Commander and appointed, to, and appointed to the Royal Yacht Alexander, then in 21 to the battlecruiser HMS Renown, 
which took Edward, Prince of Wales, on his tour that year to India, Ceylon and Japan. Three years later, he was aboard HMS Repulse for the Prince's tour of Africa and South America and was awarded the MVO, Member of the Victorian Order, and promoted to Commander. His peacetime post during the next 14 years took him to various ships and to the Royal Naval Staff College at Dartmouth and the Imperial Defence College. Promoted to captain in 1932, he was Chief Staff Officer for two years on HMS Arethusa in the Med. On the outbreak of the Second World War, he was appointed Chief Staff Officer and Personal Assistant at the Admiralty to the First Sea Lord and Admiral of the Fleet, Sir Dudley Pound. But then in May 1940, Captain Tennant received the order to take charge of the evacuation of the beaches of Dunkirk. At the head of a naval beach and pier party of 12 officers and 160 men aboard the destroyer HMS Wolfhound. They arrived off Dunkirk on May the 26th and the following day Captain Tennant signalled to Dover for every available craft to come, setting in motion the famous armada of little ships to accomplish the miracle, the rescue of 378,000 troops, 120,000 of them French. Yeah, thank you. Um, The BBC... A couple of years ago, made a, a drama documentary about the uh, Dunkirk evacuation, and it just showed what a major part that uh, Admiral Tennant played in it. He he was uh, it was remarkable what he did over there. Um, so, which is why I chose the story today. Was he the? Did he appear in the film? Oh yeah, he, he was. Was he? He was the major man in it. He, was he wasn't a, he, played by Kenneth Branagh. It wasn't him. No, no, it, no, it was okay. it was a BBC documentary. They were sort of more or less unknown actors, unknown, really. Yeah. That, yes. uh, but it was absolutely fantastic. It was about three hours long, but it was absolutely fantastic. He, he he went out there, and there was complete disorder everywhere. And he decided that there was a mole or a pier, if you like, um, that was still in one piece, more or less. And uh, he got the big ships to come and take the troops off from there, and also has been explained that they got as many small ships as possible because the big ships couldn't get into the beach, couldn't get close enough. They didn't have enough lifeboats, etc., to go in and pick up the vast amount of troops that needed to be picked up. And um, he, he, he got them shunting backwards and forwards. Uh, yeah, it was absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, they managed to get well. I think it was about a um, quarter of a million British and uh, one hundred twenty thousand uh, French. French yeah. yeah, it was absolutely yeah. an amazing yeah. operation. And fortunately, just for once, the sea was calm, which led us to it. The other thing, um, which Goring uh, completely misread, telling Hitler that the Luftwaffe could um, wipe out the yes. uh, forces was that the bombs went into the, the sand and when they exploded, they didn't do... Scattered the, sand and gravel. Exactly, and they didn't do the damage that they thought they would. Although we did lose an awful lot of ships, of especially destroyers, etc. Uh, Alan, I believe you've got a, a very... It's a quite an interesting story here. You're not the Oliver Cromwell one, you're doing the other one, the uh, Prince one, the... Uh, that's, that's that one the, there? Yeah, that one, please. Yeah. Um, it's about uh, uh, Prince uh, Arthur... Um, Henry the seventh son. Um, he was the older son. Henry the eighth to be was the younger one, 
and uh, Prince Arthur tended, uh, died very young after he still married Catherine of Aragon and it altered history in a, in a huge, big way. In an absolutely <laughs> massive way, bringing about the um, Church of England in principle. Uh, anyway, there's the story. Prince Arthur, please. And this is a right royal conspiracy, they say. A conspiracy theory is emerging five centuries on, surrounding the death of Arthur Tudor, the 15-year-old Prince of Wales at Ludlow Castle in 1502. <clears throat> it was an event that changed the course of English history, and there are now those questioning whether the Prince was deliberately sacrificed to continuing ill health, or even poisoned, in order to make way for his handsome, healthy and charismatic younger brother Henry. Arthur was always a tiny and sickly child, and two portrait paintings are said to be uh, fanciful in depicting him not as plain and ailing, but as healthy and good-looking. <coughs> Even so, his father, Henry VII, spared no expense in laying on extravagant wedding celebrations for the marriage of the teenage Prince Arthur to Catherine of Aragon at St Paul's Cathedral on November the 14th, 1501. The nation was joyous, there were even tournaments and jousting. The event actually forged a vital alliance between England and Spain, in essence a key European Union, as Catherine was the daughter of King Ferdinand of Spain and Queen Isabella of Castile. However, there are now those who are wondering why the newlyweds were dispatched just a month after their marriage, to spend the winter months in a remote spot on the Welsh borders, in a damp, cold and dingy Ludlow Castle, which had virtually no plumbing nor heating. Why was such a sickly prince packed off to a remote and chilly castle with only one doctor? As heir to the throne, the unhealthy 15-year-old lad and his 16-year-old bride ought surely to have been accompanied by a team of physicians, or, more appropriately, kept in the comfort of London, close to the best doctors in the land. Little surprise, therefore, that Arthur didn't survive the ordeal, but succumbed to ill health and died of what was described as the sweating sickness on April the 2nd, 1502, just as the spring was dawning. The emerging question, was he pushed or did he fall, is quite exciting, suggests Paul Vaughan of Worcester. Arthur's brother Henry might well have been seen as a much more promising heir to the throne and a ready spare if Arthur succumbed to illness. Unlike his sickly brother, Henry was long of limb, lusty and handsome with red hair. The Tudor dynasty, having been established in the wake of the Wars of the Roses, and after Henry VII's marriage to Elizabeth of York, was blossoming forth at the time with a great outburst of Tudor architecture and building. The Tudor dynasty obviously had great hopes for the future, but could these be founded on a sickly little lad who was then heir to the throne, asked Mr Vaughan. There is evidence which seems to suggest that Arthur was allowed to die, or may have even have been poisoned. And what better place to get rid of him than in what was then a back of beyond place like Ludlow? 
Everything that led up to Arthur's death has the makings of a mystery worthy of Miss Marple's or a problem for Poirot. The motive could have to do with the painful dilemma confronting those in power at the time over whom they could wish the Tudor crown to pass, a sickly child or a very lusty prince waiting in the wings. Whatever the truth, we know that Arthur's brother Henry did step in to take over the Tudor extravagance, the kingship of Henry VIII and even his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, as his queen. Those questioning the nature of Prince Arthur's fate also point to his burial in Worcester Cathedral as another indicator of the conspiracy theory. His body was kept at Ludlow Castle for about three weeks while deliberations took place over what to do with it. But why didn't Henry VII order the immediate return of his heir's remains to London for burial in Westminster Abbey? Only five months had elapsed since the lavish celebrations in the capital for Arthur's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Instead of bringing him back to London, it is surely remarkable that the prince's body was very quietly shoved off for burial in a remote monastery, that at Worcester Cathedral. Significantly, Prince Arthur's parents, the king and queen, didn't come to Worcester for his funeral, neither did his widow, Catherine of Aragon. The chief mourners were to be simply three earls, those of Surrey, Kent and Shrewsbury. It was all done a bit by proxy, said Mr Vaughan. And though it's an impressive feature of Worcester Cathedral, Prince Arthur's chantry, his resting place on the south side of the high altar, is not, suggest experts, as grand as it might have been for a Tudor heir to the throne and the Prince of Wales. That's it. And now, Pippa, you've got a good story, I believe. Um, yes, the headline, well, hardly a headline, but it's titled The Day It Rained Winkles, which does sound a little extraordinary. Wouldn't mind bubbles. So uh, we've all heard of it, raining cats and dogs, but Worcester made world meteorological history over a century ago when masses of winkles poured down onto the city from the skies. It may sound stranger than fiction, but there's plenty of documentary evidence of the day it rained these snail-like sea mollusks, a popular delicacy for eating like cockles and mussels. They fell on parts of St John's in such profusion that hundreds of local people were out gathering them up for a couple of days and also through one night by lantern light. Local fishmongers had lavish stocks of winkles for a long time afterwards. It all happened during freak thunder and lightning storms, which battered southern England on May the 28th, 1881. The downpour of winkles, or periwinkles as they were widely known then, was solely centred on a stretch of Albury Road, roughly between what are now the junctions with Lawn Road and with Coma Gardens. Barrow's Journal of June the 4th, 1881, recorded... The storm at St John's last Saturday afternoon was of an exceedingly phenomenal character. At first, there was a heavy fall of hail. A man named John Greenall, taking shelter in his master's garden in Coma Lane, states that he observed large masses of periwinkles fall to the ground. An army of Worcester people later came from all around to gather up the periwinkles, 
which were in such profusion that one man alone succeeded in collecting two packs full. People went on collecting them for the rest of the day, then, after darkness, by the aid of lanterns, and then all the next day. One boy even picked up a living hermit crab, reports Barrow's Journal. Some years ago, local historian Bill Gwilliam recorded a conversation with an elderly lady, a Mrs Millwood of Bromyard Road, who had, a wit- who had witnessed the storm of periwinkles. She recalled... I was eight or nine at the time. There was an awful storm, and when we left school in the afternoon, we heard about what had happened in Oldby Road. We ran there and started picking up the shellfish, putting them in our pinafores. They were alive and sodden with water, making our clean pinafores wet and dirty. Mother said they were snails. They were all over the road. The banks were full of them, and they were scattered over the hedges and into the gardens, It was an amazing sight. There seemed to be tons of them. Another city historian, Jack Collins, says there are records of people taking their hauls of winkles to local fishmongers, giving them plentiful supplies for days. Mr Collins explains that the winkle storm would have been caused by what is known nowadays as the waterspout phenomenon. They would have been lifted by a typhoon on the coast or over the sea and then deposited inland in cloudbursts. I wonder whether that will ever happen again. (laughs) Next time it would be pound notes, pound coins. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, okay. I've got um, famous people's thoughts about marriage and uh, with clues. I'll see if um, any of you can get these. Uh, This was said by uh, an American director-writer, tends to be short, was short, is short, and um, he's made a lot of quite good films and quite funny. Anyway, he said, For a while we pondered whether to take a vacation, a a vacation in fact, or get divorced. We decided that a trip to Bermuda is over two weeks, but a divorce is something you always have. (laughs) Any Mm -hmm. idea who said it? Short guy glasses made lots of comedy films. Uh, I think he married Mary Farrow. Oh, Woody Allen. Yeah, that's right. Woody Allen. Yeah. Um, This is. uh, I I, I only know this because I looked it up. This is Heinrich Hein. Apparently, he was a German poet, seventeen ninety-seven to eighteen fifty-six. He said. Hein bequeathed his estate to his wife on the condition that she marry again, because, according to Hein, there will be at least one man who will regret his death. (laughs) 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 And there's one more here. This is is great if I can find it. Oh, yes. This is uh, by a famous film star. uh, She's dead now, sadly. She was very good. If you want to sacrifice the admiration of many men for the criticism of one, go ahead and get married. I like it. If you want to sacrifice the admiration of many men for the criticism of one, go ahead and get married. I can't remember who said that um, it's... um, I never knew what happiness was until I married, and then it was too late. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) 
<laughs> I remember. I think once it's uh, um, my wife and I had 20 years of happiness and then we got married. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the one, I married Mr. Wright, but I didn't know his first name was Always. Always. Uh, yes. 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 <laughs> I think I have that as a fridge magnet on yeah. my fridge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brian, you've brought something well, with Well, something that might amuse you. Um, it's very much the fashion these days in some areas, some people, to have a bucket list of things they feel they really must do before their time comes. Well, the writer David Jenkins takes rather the opposite view, and he's worked out a negative bucket list, things he will never want to do, never have to do, and has no intention whatsoever of ever attempting to do in the rest of his life. And here's some of the things that he's highlighted. He's no intention ever now of trying to learn Esperanto. <laughs> um, he has no, 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 no ambition to ride a camel with a Touareg across the Sahara Desert on a more mundane level, or the need ever to wear fancy dress again, or a black tie, or visit every church in Rome, back home, feel that he must, must one day visit Harrods. That's an experience he's managed thus far to avoid. Never feel that he's got to conquer Broadway, or holiday in a cold climate again. Attempt to salute the sun or down my dog at Bikram Yoga. Feel that he simply must attend that festival of obscure Bulgarian films. Pretend that he yearns to eat in the latest Shoreditch pop-up restaurant. Try to appreciate Australian rules football or go and photograph the penguins in South Georgia or back home sit through a Stockhausen season at the Barbican. Not look out and search any more Eagle annuals from the 1950s. Pretend that he's remotely interested ever again in the Eurovision Song Contest. Attempt to do anything more demanding than the Guardian's quick crossword. Never pretend again that eating fish and chips on a pebbly Suffolk beach is anything other than hell. <laughs> Not once more even contemplate the idea of the 12-day walk from St. Bees to Robins Hood Bay. Has no intention of ever going potholing in Derbyshire or having a really fun night out at a karaoke bar. And above all, even think of attempting to do an Ironman triathlon. <laughs> and in fact, no need indeed, now that he's over 70, to do anything other than what he wants, when he wants, in his own sweet time. <laughs> right, I've got a couple more of these uh, famous people thoughts about marriage. Uh, this one's old, as your, as your guess from this, but uh, see if you can guess who it was. American women expect to find in their husbands a perfection that English women only hope to find in their butlers. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. That was W. Somerset Maughan. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I thought that was lovely. I've got another one here somewhere. Where is it? Oh, yeah, this is, I like this one too. This is, this is um, really old. By all means marry... 
If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> and that was Socrates. Alan, Alan, what you? Alan, you got something you brought? Yes, um, yes. The, I'll just go straight into it, and I'll, I'll leave you to make your own minds up about this. Judy Woolman Trump, who is a professional genealogical researcher in Southern California was doing some personal work on her own family tree. She discovered that President Donald Trump's great-great-uncle, Remus Trump, was hanged for horse-stealing and train robbery in Montana in 1889. Both Judy and President Trump share this common ancestor. The only known photograph of Remus shows him standing on the gallows in Montana Territory. On the back of the picture Judy obtained during her research is this inscription. Remus Trump, horse thief, sent to Montana Territorial Prison 1885, escaped 1887, robbed the Montana Flyer six times, caught by Pinkerton detectives, convicted and hanged in 1889. Let me just remind you quickly, Horse thief, prison, <laughs> robbed the Montana flyer, convicted and hanged. All right. So Judy recently emailed the president for information about their great-great-uncle Remus. Uh, believe it or not, President Trump's staff sent back the following biographical sketch for her genealogical research. They say, Remus Trump was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets and intimate dealings with the Montana Railroad. Beginning in 1883, he devoted several years of his life to government service. Finally taking leave to resume his dealings with the railroad, and in 1887 he was a key player in a vital investigation run by the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency. <laughs> in 1889, Remus passed away during an important civic function held in his <laughs> honour when the platform upon which he was standing collapsed. <laughs> fake now, news, is it? Fake news, <laughs> yes, folks, it's all fake news. Possibly fake news. To, to, can I do yeah, just yeah, one more? Just, yeah. it, it, unless I'm accused of you know, making fun of the Americans. Uh, let's bring the Russians into it. <laughs> Vladimir Putin, wanting to get on the good side of voters, goes to visit a university in Moscow to have a chat with the students. He talks to them about how powerful a nation Russia is and how he wants the best for all the people. At the end of the talk, there is a section for questions. Sasha puts her hand up and says, I have two questions. Why did the Russians take Crimea? And why are we sending troops to the Ukraine? Putin says, good questions. But just as he's about to answer, the bell goes and students go to lunch. When they come back, they sit down and there is room for some more questions. Another girl, Misha, puts her hand up and says, I have four questions. My questions are, 
Why did the Russians invade Crimea? Why are we sending troops to the Ukraine? Why did the lunch bell go 20 minutes early? <laughs> and where is Sasha? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got um, something here on uh, famous people who were expelled from school. And the first one is, this was a novelist. A, at 16, she was expelled from Francis Holland School in England. And among other crimes, she, there was truancy, smoking behind a tree during the cross, s selling readings from a diary of naughty limericks and waving at the neighbourhood flasher. <laughs> she said, I was a bad girl. She later sent the daughter to the same school. <laughs> <laughs> now, this novelist... Um, you I don't suppose you got it from that, did you? Um, she had a famous sister that was an actress. Mm. No, no, sir, no, no. Jackie Collins. Ja yeah, Sorry, yeah. You, you were just coming up with yeah. that, weren't you? I beg I, your pardon. I, I, it had just fallen in. But... Fallen in? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Pippa, you've got... Uh, something a bit more, not serious, but... Um... Not quite so light-hearted. Okay. It's what's in a name, and it's about the history of Worcester, and particularly in the names associated with the city. So, it's been a revelation to discover that Worcester derives its name from a Saxon word for warrior's lodge or hero's place of retirement. Does that mean everyone's got to be over <laughs> 65 to come there? <laughs> to live in the place. Yes. yes. From the time it was first set up as a tiny settlement by the Seven, Perhaps as long ago as 4,000 years, Worcester has had a string of fairly weird and wonderful names. Um, I've been learning, and I need to just interrupt here and say this is an article by Michael Grundy for Memory oh, Lane. Yes, yes. indeed, so well, yes. It's yes. not me that's talking, it's Michael. I've been learning with fascination of these from copies of a series of brief histories and guides to Worcester produced by writers down the centuries and kindly loaned to me by local historian Annette Leach. Some of the chronology of what follows is a shade suspect, but the names used for Worcester down the ages are genuine enough and documented in historical records. It seems that Worcester was once the camp of the Hwicki, a West Midlands tribe who called the place Hwickwarichester. That sounds good, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> I've been practising that. The ancient Britons also built and fortified a settlement on this same fertile plain on the east bank of the Severn, naming the town variously as Kervrangon, Kergurken, and Kerwarangon. Oh, I'm not mm. sure I've got my hand around that one. Mm. While the Welsh called it Ker Argo. But it is firmly believed Worcester was founded as a city by the Roman invader of 296 AD, Constantius Caesar, who named it Branovium or Brangonium. The Latins later changed the name to Vigonia, while the Saxons chose to rechristen the city as Uigaran or Wergorna, the Saxon word for warrior's lodge or hero's place of retirement. The Saxons also added another word meaning fort to give the city the full title of Wirgorna Siastra, a name which has gone through a series of corruptions down the years, such as Wygrasta, Hooster and Wuretta, ending up finally, of course, as Worcester. 
I'm not sure. You didn't really know. It's a bit like that game where you have to move one letter and replace it with another and see what word. I'm glad you're reading this. (laughs) I'm glad you won the raffle. I'm afraid it's not over either. Still on the subject of names, John Noak, a leading Worcester historian of Victorian times, wrote a fairly scathing article in 1860 for the Gentleman's Magazine, a national publication in which he heavily criticised the City Fathers for changing a lot of historic street names. He wrote, The ancient city of Worcester is likely to lose many of its old landmarks through the negligence of those who ought to be their conservators. For some years past, the names of its old streets have been undergoing alterations which have no other recommendation than that of satisfying the whims of those who object to the plain and generally appropriate names. In former times, almost every street had a name descriptive of its peculiarities, of some feature for which it was conspicuous, or of some trade exclusively carried on there, such as Baker Street, Needler's Street, which is now Pump Street, Shoemaker Street, Cheese Cheeping, and Huckster Street, now Little Fish Street. He carries on. Other changes have included Cucking Street, so christened in consequence of the cucking or ducking stool having been taken that way with its female load for immersion in the Severn, but now renamed Copenhagen Street. And Lich Street, or Street of the Dead, on the approach to the cathedral burying place, and has become Leech Street. Obviously, the city later decided to revert to the original name. John Noak also complained that Worcester had renamed some of its historic lanes. It seems an antipathy has been taken to the old word lane as not sufficiently fine for modern notions. Thus it is that Gardner's Lane has become Shaw Street, while Goose Throttle, I love that, or Goose Lane has been turned into St Swithin's Street. Frog Lane into Diglis Street, Poet Lane into Bank Street, Jail Lane into St Nicholas Street, and Salt Lane on the route of the ancient Roman Saltway to Drawchwich is into Castle Street. Mm. It is interesting, I think, that the idea that Lane obviously either went out of fashion or became, mm. you know, signified something rather um, small and, and third rate. Exactly. So. Mm. <laughs> There you are. Great article. I'm sorry if I've mispronounced some of those names, but hopefully our listeners aren't so old that they'll yeah, know well, them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from the, the original. That was really interesting. I thought you did very well. Brilliant. I, I didn't realise it was so difficult. I really do apologise. That's fine. No, it's oh, good. a good challenge. Um, right, OK. Uh, yes, right. No, I was going to say something. What was it? Oh, yes. Um, Worcester apparently is one of the oldest uh, cities or towns in England, I read an article recently, it's about 5,000 years old, which really dates it as one of the very oldest. And uh, does anyone know, I, I went to the museum once and it said Worcestershire. Does anyone know what shire means? No. It's, it's sort of outside the castle walls. The area of land outside in the, the castle. area, yeah, outside it, the fortified That's area, it, exactly. Well done, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? That's okay. what it means, yeah. Yeah. We say it all the time, and you know, there's so so many words we say, but we don't Take really know the meaning. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, I've just got uh, just to um, another couple from the films. Um, what have we got? Ah, yeah, this, uh, this is quite. A, it's an old black and white one. I think most people will know it because it's been on television, probably back in the sixties. <laughs> Made it, Ma, top of the world. 
Hmm. Nope. I think he was standing on a, an old um, gasometer or big old, big gas thing, wasn't it? Do you know, Duncan? No, he doesn't know either. <laughs> Not ringing a bell. It was uh, James uh, James Cagney in white heat. He climbed up on top of a, a, a I'm sure it was a gasometer or something like that. Yeah. And I think he fired into it or somebody was shooting at him and it exploded, you know. <laughs> that was his last words. Made it, Mara, I'm top oh, of yes, the world. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and the other one, which um, I can find it. Oh, yeah. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. This is a female oh. one. Yes. Mm. Norma Desmond. Norma, oh, yes. Sunset. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. That's it, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. You got something else, Brian? Yes, yes. It's Matthew Norman, has a, the writer Matthew Norman has a dream. Uh, yes, I have a dream, he says. I don't imagine it will come true. It isn't as poetic or utopian as Dr. King's. My dream delusional as it must sound, is to see my NHS doctor. Medical Centre went today's greeting once for seven minutes of cruel and unusual punishment music, re-yielded to the graduate of the Kaima Rouge Receptionist College. Uh, yes, I said, I'd like to make an appointment with Dr McPherson, please. Well... This was the 11th such call to the West London surgery in two months. And any residual hope of it flipping into the form of the previous survived as long as it took to check the schedule. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dr. Pearson has no appointments, she revealed more with muted satisfaction than regret. Why is that, I asked, driven by some perverse force to hear the explanation yet again? You can get addicted to anything if you go on long enough. Oh, she said, we could only take appointments for the next three weeks. I asked whether in honour of my tenacity or even of the NHS's 70th birthday she could possibly ignore the rule book and make me one for perhaps three and a half weeks hence. But such a lurch into anarchy was, she said, utterly impossible. <laughs> so, well, why is it impossible? Um... We live now in an age of wonderment when nothing is impossible. I mean, it hasn't been impossible for Donald Trump to become president. Um, it hasn't even proved impossible for England at last to win a penalty shootout. So how can it be impossible for me to make an appointment with Dr. McPherson in, say, a month's time? It's the system, she said, with neo-Stalinist finality. Is there someone else I could make an appointment with? Well, I stared forlornly at a report in my newspaper about a research from Exeter University that found that people who only ever see their own doctor live longer than those shunted between GPs. Well, are you still there? Are you just about... I was asking if I could make you an appointment with someone else. Well, possibly, yes. Uh, an undertaker, perhaps? Well, are you dead? I checked. I pressed a thumb on the vagus nerve in the neck, found it racing mildly. Apparently not. But unless you can make me an appointment with Dr. McPherson, it won't be long. I can't do that, she said. It's the system. Well, I, rung, I hung up before she reached that S-word and felt guilty. Then I remembered... Agnes, 
the outlandishly sweet receptionist at my parents' practice in Primrose Hill. Agnes doesn't seem shackled by a system. She conjures up an appointment for my mother to see her doctor almost on a daily basis. She even wants to make take my mother to meet her folks in Cameroon. Now, the system demands that you ring first thing, of course. Pray that your call beats the many others from those who share the eccentric preference for a doctor with some grasp of medicine. It used to be a matter of scientific fact that the shortest measurable amount of time was the gap between hearing and now on Radio 4 and then reaching for the off switch. However, during the recent months of failing to beat the system, I've seen two other physicians, but after the sixth call, I gave in and went to see my private chap in Knightsbridge. He listened to my 17 potentially lethal systems for his £195 fee, dismissed 15 of them, but felt that the other two were cause for graciously inviting cameras into various offices. Orifices, sorry. (laughs) After the ninth call, I registered as a temporary patient in rural Dorset and then saw an outstanding GP who regretfully explained that all he could do was give me a prescription for the eruption of gout. But doctor, I pleaded, I've driven 110 miles to see you. Well, I'm very touched, he said, but only your regular GP in London can refer you on. Uh, Why haven't you made an appointment with him? I smiled bleakly but said nothing. As discussed by Matthew Webster in this edition on Digital Life, the NHS is now trialling a service whereby a smartphone app secures you a video GP consultation within two hours. It's a thrilling development, but unless it uses technology borrowed from the bridge of the USS Enterprise, which enables the video doc to beam a latest latex gloved hand through the phone i'm really struggling to understand how this could help me i can understand how it will help urban gps they too have a dream it's the exquisitely symmetrical opposite to mine their dream perhaps understandably is never ever to have to see the likes of me (laughs) alan did you bring something else Oh, yes, I've got a uh, couple of more amusing little tales. I thought you might. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I really love this one. Um, it's, it's one for the ladies, if I may assume that. A couple were Christmas shopping. The shopping centre was packed. And as the wife walked through one of the malls, she was surprised when she looked round to find her husband was nowhere to be seen. She was quite upset because they had a lot to do and she became so worried that she called him on her mobile phone to ask him where he was. In a quiet voice he said, Do you remember the jewellers we went into about five years ago where you fell in love with that diamond necklace that we couldn't afford and I told you that I would get it for you one day? The wife choked up and started to cry and said, Yes, yes I do remember that shop. He said, well, I'm in the pub next door. <laughs> was that it? That was it. Oh, OK. I've got, Thank you very much. <laughs> I, let, let, like... me, let me tell you about a Scottish painter. OK. <laughs> Scottish, a Scottish painter and decorator called Smokey McGregor. Very interesting. Uh, he was 
always there to make a penny wherever he could. So he often thinned down his paint to make it go a bit, wee bit further. As it happened, he got away with this for quite some time, but eventually the Baptist church decided to do a big restoration job on the outside of their large building. Smokey put in a bid, and because his price was so low, he got the job. So he set about erecting the scaffolding, setting up the planks, buying the paint, and I'm sorry to say, thinning it down with water. Well, Smokey was up on the scaffolding, painting away, the job nearly complete, when suddenly there was a horrendous clap of thunder, the sky opened, and the rain lashed down. It washed the thin paint from all over the church and knocked Smokey clear of the scaffold. He landed on the lawn among the gravestones, surrounded by telltale puddles of thinned and useless paint. Smokey was no fool. He knew this was a judgment from the Almighty, so he got down on his knees and cried, O God, O God, forgive me, what should I do? And out of the thunder a mighty voice spoke, Repaint, repaint, and thin no more. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is an article about birds, which I think Barry must have known I have a soft spot for. Oh, good. <laughs> um, it's How the Clever Cuckoo Fools Its Victims by Sounding Like a Hawk. They're ready, they are already well known for their sneaky way of hiding their eggs in the nests of other birds. And now it has been discovered that cuckoos mimic birds of prey to make sure others raise their young. A female cuckoo does not make the distinctive cuckoo call of the male, but instead copies a sparrow hawk. The sound scares its victims so much they fail to notice the imposter egg. If the cuckoo successfully tricks a brooding bird, her chick will thrive at the expense of the bird's own offspring. The discovery was made by zoologists at Cambridge University who have studied cuckoos and the reed warblers they target in Wiccan Fen, Cambridgeshire, for 30 years. They found reed warblers panicked when they heard a female cuckoo's chuckling call, just as they did after hearing a sparrowhawk. The study, published in the journal Nature Ecology and Evolution, states the female cuckoo might have the last laugh in this particular battle between host defence and parasite trickery. Well, thank you. Mm. <laughs> OK, um, I've got uh, another quote from a film here, just for you all. It said, uh, this one's um, another black and white old film, 1954, in fact. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been someone instead of a bum, which is what I am. <laughs> Roughly. No. Oh. <laughs> no, do you know? Anyone? Anyone? It wasn't Rocky. No, no. No, no. 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 I, I, know, I know the quote, but I can't think of the film. You don't understand. I could have had... Look, the voice gives it away. Come on. It was said of him that, he, you know, he, they always thought he had this sort of clever acting, you know, and he sort of used to look to the side. But it was, hey, man, you know, but he wasn't looking to the side just to sort of be an actor and sort of, you know, be this... Uh, he was looking at the words. <laughs> it was Marlon, it was Mar Marlon Brando on the waterfront. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's see if I've got another one. 
Uh, oh, this one's, uh, again, I think we've had this film earlier. Here's looking at you, kid. Oh, yeah, Humphrey Bogart. Exactly, yeah. yes. Thank you very much. Brian, you got something else? Well, a few things. I mean, the yes, American commentators and um, journalists can be, over the years, extremely vitriolic about their presidents and other politicians. And here's one or two examples. But I begin with something which is attributed to Abraham Lincoln himself in uh, replying to criticism he'd had from his opponents, where he simply said, if I were two-faced, would I be wearing this one? Think how Abraham Lincoln looked. Yes, okay. <laughs> now, one or two comments about Warren Harding, president in the 30s, who, shall we say, was a little short on the intellectual front. Um, Cummings, E. Cummings said of him, he was the only man who could write a simple declarative sentence with seven grammatical errors in it. The commentator and writer H.L. Mencken said about him, he wrote the worst English I've ever encountered. It reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line, of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It's so bad a sort of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abysm of pish and crawls insanely up the topmost pinnacle of posh. It's rumble and bumble, it's flap and doodle, it's both balder and dash. <laughs> words, do you? Going on then, where a lady called Mrs. Clarence Dicestra commented, I feel that Thomas E. Dewey is about the nastiest little man I've ever known. He struts even when he's sitting down. <laughs> And when Dorothy Parker, on being told that President Calvin Coolidge was dead, how can they tell? H.L. <laughs> Mencken again, on Calvin Coolidge, democracy is that system of government under which the people, having some 35 million plus native-born adults to choose from, including thousands who are handsome and many who are wise, for their head of state, pick out Calvin Coolidge. Dare we update that remark? More recent times. Now, Jack Kemp once commented about, in more recent times, about Bob Dole. Um, when his library burnt down, it destroyed both his books and he hadn't finished colouring in the second one. <laughs> <laughs> Adlai Stevenson on Richard Nixon. Nixon is the kind of politician who would cut down a redwood tree and then mount the stump to make a speech for conservation. Harry S. Truman had a few words to say about Richard Nixon. He didn't pull any punches. Richard Nixon is a no-good lying bastard. He can lie out of both sides of his mouth at the same time, and he ever caught himself telling the truth he'd lie just to keep his hand in. Hunter S. Thompson on Richard Nixon... Richard Nixon was an evil man, evil in a way that only those who believe in the physical reality of the devil can understand it. He was utterly without ethics or morals or any bedrock sense of decency. Nobody trusted him, except perhaps the Stalinist Chinese. Honest historians will remember him mainly as a rat who kept scrambling to get back in the ship. 
and David Fry on Gerald Ford. He looks rather like a guy in a science fiction movie who is the first to see the creature. And finally, one from Tom Lehar, you may remember. Satire died the day that they gave Henry Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, the Nobel Peace Prize. There's no jokes left after that. <laughs> Alan? Um, I've got one about Oliver Cromwell. I think that might be a bit long. Have you got anything shorter? Yes. Let's have a look at this. We've all, we've all heard of Murphy's Law. I've got Murphy's other 15 laws here. <laughs> Light travels faster than sound. That is why some people appear bright until you hear them speak. Oh, very good. Brilliant. A fine is a tax for doing wrong. A tax is a fine for doing well. He who laughs last thinks slowest. A day without sunshine is like, well, night. <laughs> Change is inevitable, except from a vending machine. <laughs> those who live by the sword get shot by those who don't. <laughs> Nothing is foolproof to a sufficiently talented fool. Now, the 50-50-90 rule, any time you have a 50-50 chance of getting something right, there's a 90% probability you'll get it wrong. <laughs> it is said that if you line up all the cars in the world, end to end, someone from Sydney will be stupid enough to try to pass them. <laughs> <laughs> if the shoe fits, get another one just like it. The things that come to those who wait may be the things left by those who got there first. And give a man a fish, and he will eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, and he'll sit in the boat all day drinking beer. <laughs> a flashlight. This is a case for holding dead batteries. God gave you toes as a device for finding furniture in the dark. <laughs> and the last one, when you go into court, you are putting yourself in the hands of 12 people who weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty. Oh, cruel. Pippa. How much time have we got? I don't know, ten minutes. Well, I'll do a bit of this one then. A okay. um, bit more history. Uh, and a bit more history about Worcester. Victorian history, to be precise. 19th century Worcester was the most traditional of cities. Despite all the bustling new commerce and industry, it seemed almost impossible to shake off the past. One famous landmark, finally levelled in 1843, was the old Castle Mound, which for centuries had loomed over the riverbank. But when Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837, a surprising amount of the city's historic fabric remained standing. It was also a townscape still bursting with greenery and garden plots. The urban suburbs of the future were then only a scatter of satellite rural villages, and this atmosphere of semi-rustication characterised whole swathes of the, of the city right up to the end of the century. It explains why Edwin Lees and his merry band of fellow naturalists were able to romp about Worcester, listening with delight to the sound of the nightingale along the banks of Lawn Brook. Up to this point, the city had remained at a comfortable size, but although the numbers in certain central parishes were falling, 
the general population trend was relentlessly upwards as Worcester expanded outwards, swallowing up its surrounding villages. A Liberty Post, standing at the southern corner of Salt Lane, which is Castle Street, which marked the old boundary line, had no further purpose. In 1837, they decided to increase Worcester's urban area by nearly four times, so that Barbourne Brook and the Swan Inn now marked the new city limits to the north. A quick interruption here, that's only a mile from the city centre, so it really Mm. must have been terribly small if you Mm. think that that had grown, it was four times bigger at that point, well, when they extended it. In 1835, the area around the cathedral was absorbed into the city, having lost its jealously guarded territorial status in the Hundred of Oswald's Law. I've neither heard of him or the Hundred, but anyway. As for the Victorian inhabitants, many owned surnames with true local pedigrees, like those ending in Ard. I was thinking of Glazard, Stallard, Millard. And the locals... hmm? Well, those are all Worcester names, aren't they? The local speech still reflected the strong cadences of old Mercian Saxon language. Hers a right scrat, hers is. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've got a Worcester accent here. Anyway, that means a hard-working wench. Incomers from the villagers were an important element of the expanding population. Like Elgar's sister, Lucy, they would keep their love of the country ways. In her case, the refreshment and tranquil pleasure of breathing the air of Broadheath Common. I can go on, but if you'd like to move on to something else. Okay, I'll just do a little bit about the pigs. So for many city residents, keeping up old rural practices was hardly a problem. The authorities, according to the antiquarian John Noke, just about managed to introduce some control over the many pigs wandering around the streets. How well and truly the citizens knew and loved their porkers. Words long forgotten were then common, like trinkly, a small fat pig, and mudgkin, the fat off a pig's chitterling. Old customs surrounded pig breeding, such as the rule that no animals should be slaughtered when the moon was waning, or the bacon wouldn't be nice and plump. Mm. I love that. As late as 1890, the developer EF West was putting in pigsties in Radcliffe Street. And that's near Barbourne, I think. Just as today, we would be installing garage spaces. When illnesses came, local people would always be keen to try the old remedies first, Physicians at the Royal Infirmary despaired over the popular devotion to folk medicine, like the Worcester cure for shingles, which was rubbing on dust and grease from round the clapper of an old bell. These customs kept things steady in a changing world. Yeah, they all died. And and those in power were quite adept in using them. And last couple of paragraphs. The ancient parish of St Helens kept up a regular custom of beating the bounds, and St Helens' curfew bell was rung nightly as in medieval times, and its rival was the plum pudding bell, which sang out from the Tower of St. Martin's in the Corn Market. Mm. There's a lot in here, I think. It could go on and on, couldn't it? It's a lovely book, book. yeah, Yeah. really nice. Right. In the... Oh, this is our old English. In the 1800s, ducks were called arse feet (laughs) because their feet are so close to their bottoms. And the the actual... uh, The word ears... In the 1800s, apparently he meant arse. In, uh, this is the old English, so, yeah, if you... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, really. Um, but people's body temperature apparently drops when they watch videos or television of other people putting their hands in cold water. 
Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Mm. And this is quite good for animal lovers. You'll like this one. During the Cold War, the US tested supersonic ejector seats on bears. <laughs> 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 Brian, what have you got? Well, You've got, got a few yeah, minutes left. Take a few minutes. Yeah, two or three minutes. Um, the television personality and writer Anne Robinson reports on a rather fraught rail journey back from Sheffield. She says, I was driven up to Sheffield from the Cotswolds on a Sunday afternoon to take part in a panel discussion at television festival in the city the following morning, and then I agreed to return to London by train. After the event, one of the organisers kindly accompanied me to the station, carried my heavy suitcase, but then suggested, look, the earlier train to London hasn't left yet, you'll save a lot of time by getting that one. Woe is me. Half an hour later, we were still stationary when an announcement advised us of long delays at Chesterfield. It would be best if we'd move over to the branch line as the train will do that and then we can change at Doncaster for London. Now, of course, there's no obliging bigwig media person to help me in my heavy suitcase up the steps and down the steps and across to board the jam-packed two-carriage local train at the other end of the station. Well, thank goodness for Anita Land, the world-famous TV agent, who's already on board and jumps up and waves to a seat that she's already bagged. She's with her client, no less Trevor MacDonald. Well, fellow travellers can't believe their luck. There's huge excitement as we sit cheek by jowl, jogging along for nearly an hour. Various fellow passengers line up to chat and ask us to have a selfie, very occasionally, with both of us and not just Trevor. Then, as we draw into Doncaster, a reminder that one must never get carried away with fame or self-importance, an elderly Yorkshireman approaches and stands in front of us, frowning. I can't remember who you two are, he says, but I'll have a picture anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's uh, coming up to the end now. Have you got anything short, Alan? Anything very short? Uh, minute, minute, minute and a half, not that sort of thing? Very short, I don't think. Um, no. Pippa? No. You have a couple more film quotes oh, yeah, yeah, if you yeah. want. Let's have a couple from you. Mine, funnily enough, are all women. It's a bit of a clue. It's strange, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I can't do the accents. Why don't you come up and sometime? Why don't you come up sometime and see me? May West. That's got to be May West. Got to be. Yeah. May West. And the film? No idea. She done him wrong. Oh yes, yes. yes. And I've got. Um, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Sounds like the sort of thing Betty Davis would have said, but uh, can't. We see. have had the film before, I think, this evening. Yes, it's Sunset Boulevard. Really? Yes. Oh. And this one I do know, even though it was before my time. I want to be alone. Oh, yes. oh yeah. Greta. Greta. Yes. Lava. And the film was? No idea. The Grand Hotel. Oh, right. Oh, right. One more. Um, one more. Yeah. You, you know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Oh, Lauren, Lauren Bacall. Bacall. Lauren yeah. Bacall. Can't remember yeah. the film. Uh, 
to have and to have, have not. To hold. Yeah, that yes. was Humphrey yes. Bogle, wasn't yes. it? Who she married. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think that's it for my lot. Well, I love, I love this one. Um, one morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. How he got in my pyjamas, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Groucho Marx. <laughs> Got to be Groucho yeah, Marx yeah, yeah. from Animal Crackers, yes. Or a more sinister note, a boy's best friend is his mother. That one, oh, yeah. a boy's best friend is his mother. Sinister, sinister. Yeah. Oh, that's um, uh, Hitchcock, isn't it? Yes, um, yes. Oh, Psycho. Yes, yes. Norman Psycho. Bates. Yes. Oh, yeah. And Psycho. Yeah. 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 yeah, With the stabbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's about the end. So, um, if you'd uh, like to say all goodbyes, yeah. Brian. Well, us. farewell, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, Alan. Bye for now. See you next time, Pippa. And bye from me, and see you in a couple of months, I think. Well, I hope uh, you know, when I'm hope next time. You know, yes, if you need a you, if you need a substitute, it. I'm available. Yeah, I'm and sure. yeah, you you got um, you did a magazine last month, didn't you? Yes, and yes. You were editor, and it got a lot of uh, people writing and saying how good it was. I think it was two. <laughs> but two is That's better than you, none. You didn't have to say that. <laughs> no. No, we, we were delighted, and I'm sure that Barry would love it if people wrote in and and said nice things about. His edition as well. <laughs> anyway, um, this is uh, a link for after the music that uh, usually finishes our um, magazine. Um, that um, a few weeks ago, I went to the RAF hundred year um, parade in uh, in Worcester Centre and recorded the music and uh, an interview or two. And John has put something together, which uh, we're going to play afterwards as an addition to this programme. So if you listen on after the music, uh, you'll be able to hear it. I'd like to say goodbye and I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks very much indeed.
today is a celebration in Worcester of celebrating RAF 100. Squadron leader Ian Rose. And so there's a parade today through the centre of Worcester, uh, headed by a contingent from RAF Cosford, and followed up by around 300 cadets. So it's a fantastic day here. There's one band at the front, which is a group of uh, RAF air cadets that are leading the parade. John Mason is the chairman of the Royal Air Force Association for Worcester and District. John, why is it important to celebrate the centenary of the RAF in Worcester? Well, Worcester is one of these places that people never think of as being a Royal Air Force area. You think of fighter commanders being in Kent, bomber command being in the East Coast, Lincolnshire, Suffolk. Nobody ever thinks of Worcestershire. But during the Second World War, the most important developments, scientific developments, that helped us defend ourselves against the Germans in the Blitz and take the war to them was radar. That was developed mainly in Worcester, started elsewhere, but it moved to Worcester in 1941. And all the major developments were carried on at Worcester and the flying of the aeroplanes and the testing and the equipping was all done at the Worcester airfields of Pershaw and Defford. But like Bletchley Park, it was kept secret long after the war because of the Cold War and the work's still going on, and so people didn't talk about it. Well, 100 years after the Royal Air Force was formed, it's a jolly good time to bring it out from behind the bush. Let everybody know that Worcester is not just an army garrison town, it's a very important RAF centre. And in fact, over 10,000 people were in the Royal Air Force uniform in Worcestershire. And so here we are in Worcester on a very, very special day. <laughs> Um, yeah, I served in the Air Force in the early 50s. In fact, I was in at the time of the Suez Crisis. I worked on radar, mobile unit that went with the front line. And we were giving navigational fixing for our bombers into enemy territory. And at the time of the Suez Crisis, we were shifted to the Iron Curtain, right up against the Iron Curtain. Fortunately, United Nations stepped in, pulled the sides apart, and we could all come away without getting hurt. I have a very close affinity with the Royal Air Force because I'm a member of the Royal Air Force family, as everybody that's ever been in the Royal Air Force is. And that's what the Royal Air Force Association is all about. It's looking after everyone who's ever been in the Royal Air Force if they ever need help. John Mason, thank you. One of the highlights of this year's celebrations in Worcester is a special appearance by the band of the Royal Air Forces Association. Peter Skellen is the band's musical director. Well, I actually founded it with another member of the Royal Air Forces Association, and it's our 20th year in October, so 20 years ago for the Rafa Band. And before that, um, it was eight years as a volunteer band instructor, and before that was 24 years in the Royal Air Force Music Services. And before that, I learnt the cornet. <laughs> Originally, actually, I came over from the, the regular army 
as a boy soldier, I didn't like being, I didn't want to be a medic, I wanted to be a musician. So I joined the Royal Air Force and they promised me within 14 months I'd be a musician. Four and a half years later, I actually got a full-time musician. Where were you playing in the world? Gosh, uh, Germany, Salala, Cyprus, the Gulf. Um, did a one stint in Falklands, that was all, just down there and back, that was enough. <laughs> you were awarded the BEM, British Empire Medal, what, tell us about that. Um, it was quite a shock actually, when it came, um, I thought it was a joke by some members of the band and I didn't believe it. Uh, when the official letter came, I did believe it and I was absolutely shocked. I had no idea um, that somebody had put me, or people had put me forward. Um, but it, what it was, was uh, um, for my services to the Royal Air Forces Association and also to the arts and music. What are the main aims of the band? Uh, the main aim is to raise awareness of the Royal Air Force Association. We've, done, we've just finished recording our third CD, um, unfortunately not ready for this concert, but uh, in a month's time we should have it ready to come out and that's to celebrate the it's called an anniversary salute which is not only our 20th year but it's 100 years of the Royal Air Force of course and it's 100 years of the signing of the armistice. Peter Skellen, thank you very much. Thank you.